Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we begin a brand new series in 2 Timothy called Make It Count. So turning your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. This next three weeks, we're going to be studying the book of 2 Timothy, and today, you know, I simply want to share what we can anticipate through studying this amazing little book, only four short chapters. So first, please notice that this book is the very last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. Our New Testament is made up of 27 books, 13 are written by Paul, and this is his last. 2 Timothy was written a short period of time before Paul's death, at a time when he knew his death was imminent. He knows it, and he's communicating that fact to Timothy. There are in the Bible a number of farewell speeches. The most famous, of course, is Jesus in the upper room. But there's also the farewell speech of Moses in Deuteronomy, the farewell speech of King David in 1 Kings chapter 2, farewell speech of Joshua in Joshua 24. And these speeches, if you will, are the last words that are spoken before death. The letter of 2 Timothy is exactly that, Paul's last words before his death. I wonder how many of you have ever thought about what kinds of things that you'd like to say, either to your spouse or your children or your family, you know, your friends, if you knew you were going to die in a short while. Surprisingly, some people say very little, or if they do, it might be something insignificant. I remember once attempting to minister to a dying man, and he had no greater thought in his head other than he would miss the next year's hockey season. It was well, incredible. But I suspect that those who have lived well think differently. If that's you, the things that you would want to say are probably the most important things to you, the things that matter most, the things that you know, really count, the things that you've lived for. That's what's in this letter. But perhaps the real drama in this letter is not just that Paul will die shortly. It's the drama of how he got to that point. Saul of Tarsus, as he was originally called, described his early life as being Hebrew of the Hebrews. In other words, he was proud of and fully identified with the people of Israel as you know, any man would do. He belonged to the tribe of Benjamin. That was important. As a young man, he was trained under Rabbi Gamaliel, one of the most eminent teachers of his day. But Saul was also trained in Greek culture and language. And as a young man, he became known as a man of great intellect. He's also known as a man of an iron will who had an incredible self-control. He would later describe this period of his life by saying, as far as righteousness of my own that comes from observing the law, blameless. That's in Philippians 3 verse 6. Paul was a man able to master himself and also to keep all the ceremonial Old Testament law without falter. That doesn't mean he wasn't a sinner, but I suspect he never thought of himself that way. He soon became a Pharisee. He was destined to become one of the leading men of his culture, a man whose star was on the rise and until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And that encounter completely changed the trajectory of his life. His own description of the event is recorded in Philippians 3, verses 7 to 8. He says, But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So there's no doubt that for Paul, his conversion changed everything 
right down to what he both held as important and what he now despised. The great theologian Jonathan Edwards called this a matter of the affections. So our affections are the things that we love and the things that we despise, the the things we dream about and long for, or as Edwards called it, the strong inclinations of the soul. And all that changed and was newly formed at Paul's conversion. But that wasn't all. Jesus himself called Paul on a sacred mission, and for years, of course, he's the missionary and church planter, a ministry reaching Gentiles with the gospel of Jesus. And it's really because of him that the most of us have even heard of Christ. Paul not only opened the door to Gentile missions, but he carefully developed a theology that formed the basis for all faithful missions in the future. And so for him, how was his missionary experience? Well, it was a wild ride. Much joy, incredible success, deep lasting friendship, and suffering and pain that would made most men run away. Paul carried out three missionary journeys. Those journeys took him through most of Turkey and Greece, planting churches and establishing the gospel where it had never gone before. But he had an enduring dream. He wanted to push into Western Europe, taking the gospel into Spain. But then things took a difficult turn. Before going to Spain, he felt obligated to go back to Jerusalem and carry with him a financial gift for the famine-ravaged Christians in Jerusalem. And there in Jerusalem, he's arrested, and he would have been put to death. Indeed, he almost was. A frenzied crowd of religious zealots were dragging him out of the temple to kill him in the streets. But the Roman commander of a thousand soldiers under his command, who also had several centurions who answered to him, saw what was happening and immediately took action. He saved Paul's life. And because Paul was a Roman citizen, Paul was protected from a mob who vowed not to eat until they had murdered him. Eventually, of course, we know that he appealed to Caesar to fight the unjust charges that were being brought against him. And when we get to the end of the book of Acts, he's been transported as a prisoner from Caesarea to Rome, and he's awaiting trial. He remains in a Roman prison for two years. And in the meantime, in Rome, he writes what have been called the prison epistles or the prison letters. Those are the letters of Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. And in those letters, we do get a sense that he's expecting to be released from prison. Even though the Bible doesn't record it, it seems clear that's, that's precisely what happened. Tradition tells us that he did appear in a Roman trial. He was found not guilty, and then he was released. Now, whether he ever made it to Spain, well, that we don't know, but it does seem possible. And in the meantime, his ministry continues, and he writes 1 Timothy and Titus, letters to young men who have been trained by him and are sent as his representatives to the local churches. And then in some fashion, as his ministry continues, there is some kind of a reversal of policy regarding his previous arrest. Paul is re-arrested, and why? You know, many historians explain the reason for the second arrest to a new policy that had been developed in Rome. During the night of July 18th to 19th in the year AD 64, a fire broke out in Rome that burned down a good chunk of the city around the palace of the emperor. Nero, who was then the emperor of Rome, was, well, he was also a madman. And most historians believe that Nero himself deliberately set fire in order to allow him more room to expand his palace. And then, in order to erase suspicion, he blamed it on the Christians, who by that time were deeply hated by some members in the wider population. 
Christians were being arrested everywhere, cruelly tortured, some were burned alive, and it was a massacre that was going on. Now, this new policy then of official persecution of Christians, and it would seem after some time that Paul himself was arrested, and this time he could expect no fair trial. Many historians believe that Paul was in his second imprisonment in the Mamertine prison in Rome, and if that's so, it was a dismal underground chamber with a single hole in the ceiling for light and air. Paul, by this time, when we come to 2 Timothy, has had a court hearing. He alludes to it in 2 Timothy 4, 16 and 17, where he says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. So from a human vantage point, everything he had left, his life in Judaism, and everything that he had now embraced, his surrender to Jesus, had cost him everything he had, and it would in the end cost him his very life. Paul becomes the man that Jesus spoke of, the man who would not love his life unto death. Now, I've been told that, you know, poker is not fun unless there's a lot of money on the line. So please don't hear what I'm about to say as an endorsement of gambling. In fact, I'm very much against gambling. But hear the illustration. When you place a large sum of money on a poker table, either bluffing or having a strong hand, and then glance around at your opponents, you are for that moment, they say, fully alive. You've got no difficulty concentrating. You've got no boredom. You've got no sense of aimlessness. And that's Paul. He's placing everything on the line, his whole life, betting that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. What an amazing time in his life. February is International Ministries Month, a time to celebrate the ministry work being accomplished in partnership with our friends in India, Sri Lanka, Curaçao, and beyond. Back to the Bible Canada is committed to providing ministry support, Bible teaching programming, resources, content, and international pastors' Bible teaching conferences impacting hundreds of national pastors. Most recently, funds were provided to Back to the Bible India to translate, produce, and distribute thousands of Dr. Neufeld's book, Making the Most of Your Salvation, throughout India in 10 different languages. God is at work through these opportunities, and your gracious gifts have provided the means to partner in ministry far beyond our borders. This month, would you consider an additional international ministry gift to help reach the 2022 International Projects Goal of $50,000. Back to the Bible Canada has a global vision the size of our global mission. Thank you in advance. Call today with your gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I don't care to be an expert in poker, but there's something in my illustration of the poker table that I want all of us to hear. Until our faith in Christ costs us everything, I doubt it's really meaningful. See, when Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor, returned to Germany during the Nazi era, he didn't have to. He had offers from churches in the U.S., but he felt that no shepherd could abandon his flock in the day of trouble. Eventually, he would be hanged in the Flossenburg prison by a piano wire. 
You see, when your faith costs you everything, you discover what you really believe, what you really value, and what ultimately means the most. And that's what this series on 2 Timothy is all about. I've entitled the series, Making It Count. See, I want to challenge you to live faith in Christ like everything's on the line. I want to challenge you to make risks for the gospel of Christ. I want to challenge you to suffer for the gospel and so identify with the cross. And I want to do that by listening to the last words of the dying man, the Apostle Paul, because when it's all on the line, you discover what you have wanted to invest in. You know, for many of us, the word investment has only one meaning. It speaks of financial investments. A great many people forego current pleasures and spend lifetime of investing in financial portfolios so they can live out the remaining years of their life on a wrinkle farm in some warm place or so that they can be secure by means of surviving any financial storm that might come along, including job loss and so forth. See, our investments tell us what we really believe in, what we really live for. Tim Keller, when speaking on idolatry, said that the idol that you worship is that thing that when it's taken away, leaves you with no more reason for living. And whatever it is, whatever it is that you live for or dream about or yearn for, well, that's your idol. You know, Keller says, idols are cruel, for in the end, they're always taken away. So from one perspective, Paul, this condemned man, was about to lose it all, or was he? You know, if you look at Paul's investments, they begin where this letter begins. Paul has not only fully invested his life in the gospel, he's also invested his life in the next generation. 2 Timothy 2 verse 2 says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And as we read this letter, it soon becomes evident that Paul's passing the torch to Timothy, who represents the next generation of Christian leaders, and he's saying to him, Timothy, I've run with this thing as far as I can. Now it's your job to keep running. So as we study this letter, we're going to see this is what matters to Paul. The legacy he leaves is not him, but the legacy of faithful men who fearlessly preach and live as he does. How many of us can identify with that? You know, it was some years ago that Scott Wesley Brown sang a song that I've always liked it. It said, may all who come behind us find us faithful. May the power of our devotion light their way. May the footsteps that we leave lead them to believe and the lives we live inspire them to obey. Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. Yeah, I have known some people who seem to care very little about what impact they will leave on the lives of those who come after them. They live for today and for themselves. Look, I'm a baby boomer, and I think that summarizes my generation. Baby boomers took a world that was free of debt, and they left a world of suffocating debt for the generation to come. Baby boomers have taken and they've not cared about who will come after. The same is true of many of the values they left behind, the values that have been embraced by the ones that came after them, values that leave marriages and families in chaos. But believers always ask, when my life is scrutinized and perhaps emulated by those who come after, what then? May our lives ignite a passion for Christ in the generation after us. And that's what we learn in 2 Timothy. In order to live faithfully, and to leave a legacy of godliness behind us, we'll need to be prepared to pay the price. And on this issue, we need to admit that none of us wants to suffer. But we all know this, that suffering is a part of life. 
It's a part of living in a fallen world. And there are many times when we simply can't avoid suffering. And in times like these, Christians do place their lives into God's providential care. But there are also times when we might be in a place in which we would choose to suffer. And that seems like an almost foreign concept in today's world, something that many can't even conceive of. Suffering comes in many ways, but one of the ways in which it comes is when we deny ourselves of something that we genuinely like to have for the sake of those who come after us. Have a listen to 2 Timothy 2 verse 10. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And Paul's telling us here that he's established and then lived according to a set of priorities. He is gospel-oriented, so much so that he would gladly die to the desire of self and live regardless of the cost so that the gospel would go forward. And how was he able to do that? Well, he explains it in chapter 4, verses 6 to 8. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So think of it this way. Where do you think is the best place to invest? Do you think that if you gave up some things in this life for the things in the life to come, do you think that's a good deal or a bad one? See, I think that most people in our generation prefer investing into this world as opposed to the world to come. Or at the very least, they can't imagine that investing in the world to come might require a sacrifice here and now. But that's what we do read in 2 Timothy. See, here's the advantage of studying 2 Timothy. First, it has God's stamp of authority. Look how the book begins. 2 Timothy 1 verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Now, there are many who have wondered about this way of beginning, you know, the last letter of Paul. You know, for many... This seems like a formal beginning. I mean, why not be intimate? But Paul has something very precious in mind. You see, when he writes Timothy, he's different than simply a dying man speaking to his son. He's an apostle, one who's been directly chosen by Jesus to be his spokesman and to authoritatively teach what Jesus would want to have taught. And in that way, this letter is much more than personal correspondence. This is what God wants to say to us. If you want to finish this life well, If you want to get to the end of your life and say, I've lived well, then you should read and study this letter. It is God's direction on how to do just that. Second, understand that this letter comes with a promise of life. Look again at the last part of verse 1. According to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. See, that phrase may seem strange from a man who's about to be beheaded in a Roman prison, but that's precisely what he says. Just like Jesus who went to the cross and purchased life for us, so also for Paul to be beheaded for the name of Christ is the pathway to life. And all that's counterintuitive. If you listen to people today, you'll hear them talk about how to live long, not how to get beheaded. But that's the amazing thing about this letter. If you throw your life away for Christ, that's what you'll find. And third, this letter is intensely personal. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. To Timothy, my beloved child grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's not giving this counsel to someone he doesn't know. You know, it's one thing to sell a product to people you've never met and people you're not invested in. Well, it's quite something different. 
to sell something to someone you love as dearly as you can love anyone. That's when things get very real. And so Paul begins by expressing to Timothy that what he desires for him, grace, which is the unmerited favor of God, mercy, which deals with God's forgiveness, but it also assures us that God's going to be there when things get rough. And peace, that means we're reconciled with God. So no, Paul's not promising peace in this world. Indeed, he's promising Timothy a brutal reality, the reality of putting everything on the line. That reality will cost Timothy everything as it has cost Paul everything. But then Paul also wants Timothy to emulate him. Why? Because Paul knows that what he's offering Timothy is truly life. So that's the challenge of this book. Imagine again my gambling illustration. So here you see a gambler. He's standing before a roulette wheel, in which there are, let's say, there are 36 numbers. I had to look that up. And all he has to do is to put everything he has, his family, his loves, his finances, everything that he has, bet it on one number, and then he says, let it ride. Make it count. And you might ask yourself, is the gambler a fool? Well, yes, he is unless he's gambling on something he knows to be true. And in our case, what we know to be true is this. The grave of Jesus is empty. He's risen from the dead, and the author of life offers to us eternal life. Bet everything you have on that truth and see how God honors it. Thanks so much, John. I think it's going to be a great series. But let me go back to your illustration about our faith being a gamble. I'm sure that there are those who would find that sort of a challenging illustration. Yeah, I don't mean that, you know, it it might come true and it might not. I don't mean that. But I do know that in this world that what we are called upon to do is to put all of our resources and all of our hopes and we're to put them on the truthfulness of the promise that comes through the resurrection of Jesus. See, some of us are hedging our bets, to use that same language, and we're hoping that, you know, if the resurrection isn't true, well, then maybe I can still get something out of this life. Now, look, I'm not saying there's nothing to get out of this life. I'm just simply saying that if you are called upon to give up everything for the cause of Christ, that shouldn't be thought of as a great sacrifice. After all, aren't you counting on the resurrection and its truth? Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Make It Count, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Each month, we send out a free monthly update email that provides unique ministry content that includes our five and five audio program. Five questions in five minutes in conversation with those intimately involved in the mission and vision of Back to the Bible Canada. The email also includes advanced resource offers, insight into current and future programming, and the ways that you can be involved. The ministry update email is available simply by subscribing online at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. In the ministry update email in February, expect to hear more information about our international ministries and the unique impact that is being made in the world with Back to the Bible Canada programs, resources, and conferences. For more information or to send your gift, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.